0: Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy.
1: Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are continuing in point number one on our worksheet entitled Important Prophecy Terms, and we are comparing and contrasting seven sets of uh, two terms each um, uh, in preparation for going over uh, the 30 prophetic events that are going to take place according to God's precious word between now and eternity. So we're going to look at 30 events. I've uh, tried to put them in chronological sequence uh, as best I can. And again, it's just my uh, understanding, my uh, prayerful study of the Bible and if you have questions about anything that we talk about on this program whether it's these uh, understanding of these prophetic term sets these seven sets of terms we're going through or uh, as we get into the overview of uh, the next uh, the 30 next prophetic events that uh, i would certainly enjoy hearing from you and if you uh, allow me to i would like to talk about it on the air because if you have a question about the bible Then I've got to believe there are other people listening somewhere that uh, agree with that or disagree with that. And whatever the case, talking about it, uh, using the scriptures to understand it would be edifying to everyone. So if you do have a question, don't keep it to yourself because there is, when you're studying the Bible, there's no such thing as a bad question and no such thing as a stupid question. Because if you have it, You've got to believe a lot of other people have it as well. They just haven't voiced it. So um, voice it for us, and if you allow me, I'll even I'll even use your name on the on the air if you like, just to make it uh, even more enjoyable as we develop a fellowship here as we uh, explore uh, Bible prophecy together. So we're we're working on our worksheet, which of course the announcers told you you could get through this radio station website. And because we have so many verses, I would suggest you do that so you can follow along more easily with us. And uh, we're looking at uh, the terms the Son of God and the Son of Man, and we've been working for some time now through scriptures developing our understanding of the Son of God, and now we're going through scriptures that are using it, and um, hopefully the background that we've developed on this will give you greater insight as we look at each of these verses and see the importance of understanding from God's perspective what it means when he uses the term the Son of God or the term the Son of Man, because you could easily read through read through the Bible, read over these, and think they're exactly the same thing. Yes, they both are Jesus, but they are distinctly different manifestations of Jesus depending on what is being spoken about and who's being spoken to. So it's all part of context. Remember at the beginning when we talked about how to study the Bible? And we'll do that again uh, right before we do the, uh, the 30 uh, chronologically sequenced uh, prophetic events yet to take place. We will do a, uh, a one-day lesson on how to study the Bible again, as we did uh, before our first series on why study Bible prophecy. Um, so it's all about context. You know, they, they talk about location, location, location in real estate. Well, in Bible study, it's context, context, context. And if we were to really um, believe the importance, the, the absolute necessity of understanding the context of Scripture, I really believe that we wouldn't have all these denominations today and we wouldn't have all of these different doctrines out there God intended one body of believers, one church as it were, and one um, doctrine. and I guess I need to clarify that because there's the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of, of church and so forth. but there's only in each case there's only one. There are not 10 or 12 depending on the denominations and so forth. So it's it really comes back to context. So as we go through these scriptures and we're going to, um, Focus on Matthew sixteen, but before I, I do, I want to go back and just reiterate what we talked about at the end of our last program, and that was found in Second John, and of course there's only one chapter there, thirteen short verses, and we were in verses seven through eleven, and I actually had gone back in talking about that uh, to First John, and we looked at First John chapter three, uh, verse um, seven, then we looked at First John. Uh, chapter 5, verse 20, to build a foundation of understanding of why we are admonished in 2 John, uh, verses 7 through 11, that when somebody comes to your house, and this is talking to you as a believer, that uh, particularly if you are the head of the house, but if there is a believer in that house, then there is an umbrella, if you will, Uh, For a visual term, there's an umbrella of spiritual protection uh, over that house and over those people, because you are a child of the living God, and God is very jealous for you. And of course, it's all the better the more people in that house that uh, are believers in Jesus Christ. But the the point is, that house is a special house, because a believer lives there and we're told we're admonished in second john that if somebody comes to your door not professing Jesus Christ uh, as the son of god his death burial and resurrection the fact that he has come to this earth as we learned in first john chapter 5 verse 20 if they're not professing that then they are professing false beliefs they are professing a false religion and the bible says squarely point blank Do not invite them into your house. Stay out on the doorstep. Stay out on the porch. Stay out on the street. Wherever it is that you encounter these people or they encounter you, do not be the gracious host and bring them in and sit them down and give them coffee and tea because it says very clearly you are participating in their evil deeds. Because remember the old adage that what you allow, you teach. So you're basically, um, particularly if there are unbelievers in your house or there are um, new believers, young believers, what the Bible would call people who are on the milk of the word, if they see what they believe is a stronger believer inviting people professing a false religion in the house and then uh, uh, appearing to um, condone what they're saying, that gives the wrong... It certainly uh, conveys the wrong message, and it flat out violates what God is telling us through um, the Apostle John in his writings. And of course, remember, he's not writing this himself. He's writing it through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So this is God telling us, do not invite these people into your house. And if for some reason you find them in your house because one of your family members has invited them in, then it would be a very instructive thing to do is to invite them to step out on the front porch. And and you can actually go to the Scriptures and share that truth with them. Uh, And we've done that. We've done that. And another thing you find that as you get into the Scripture with these people and they realize that you know the truth, you know the Scriptures uh, fairly well, they will actually say, as they did with us, uh, for my wife and I, you know the Scriptures uh, we'll be leaving now because they are hoping to deceive you. As we saw in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, they're hoping to deceive you because you are unknowledgeable, that you do not have a grasp of the truth of God's word. So therefore, they see you as easy prey. So what am I trying to get across here? Don't be easy prey. Study along with us here. Study along in other venues, in your Sunday schools, in your churches, in your quiet time. But please um, pay pay attention to God's word so that you are not deceived by these people. Because frankly, they are some pretty slick talkers. And these people are schooled. And anyone who's talked to them at the door knows that they know their stuff. The unfortunate thing is their stuff is false. So you need to not be deceived by these people. So I don't want to uh, pound on that anymore, but I, I did want to come back and pound on it because it is something that uh, very few people know about. When I show them 2 John chapter 1 and read those verses, it's like, oh my goodness, I did not know that. I did not know that that was against God's word to invite those people into my house. So we'll we'll leave that, and you can pray about that, and you can Act on that as the Holy Spirit works with you in your life. So now what I'd like to do is let's go to um, a a really, well, informative for sure, but I think impactful, important passage. We find it in more than one gospel, but I like the way uh, Matthew does it, so I like to go to Matthew. I want to go to Matthew chapter 16 because this is the key, or a key, Uh, very key um, turning point, tipping point, however you want to say it, but a turning point in Jesus' ministry on the earth. When he came to the earth, was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, so therefore the angel instructed Mary to call him the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not of man, because it was an immaculate conception, if you will, and an amazing, miraculous um, birth uh, of Jesus Christ uh, some 2,000 years ago. And the point we want to um, make here is that when he came, he came as a king. He came as the Messiah promised to Israel, you know more than 1,400 years ago. One of the things we looked at was way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 17. You see that on your worksheet where Moses prophesied that Jesus would come from Israel. He would be an Israelite and that uh, God would basically let man know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And of course, we went through the New Testament scriptures that told us exactly, that's exactly what happened. And those were the exact words that God indeed used, both at um, the Jordan at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was uh, baptized by John. And then um, right here, this is Matthew 16, in the very next chapter, Matthew 17, is the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, um, Jesus is revealed to the apostles in his transformed, um, um, perfect form, which is how he will come back uh, with his church at the second coming. He allowed that handful of apostles to see him like that, and they heard God say the exact words that Moses had used 1,400 years before in Deuteronomy 18, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Well, Jesus came as had been prophesied, and in Matthew chapter 10, and we're not going there, but in Matthew chapter 10, in the first number of verses there, this is where Jesus selects the 12 apostles from among his disciples. And remember, a disciple is a student who is sitting, literally it means to sit at the feet of the teacher or rabbi, which is Jewish or Hebrew for teacher. And once that student has matured, then he is sent out as a messenger. And the word for messenger in the Bible is apostle. So we see Jesus selecting from us among his disciples, 12 apostles, and he gives them the gospel of the kingdom. I'm the king. I'm here as had been prophesied. Go out and tell the people that I'm here. And if they will merely accept me, believe that I am the son of God and that I was sent here as prophesied, as had been covenanted with you. Then I will set up my kingdom. And that brings us to Matthew 16, the pertinent passage here, verses 13 to 18. And this is where Jesus, after having sent the apostles out to share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, they came back to report to Jesus. And it's very important for us to understand. As we learn there at the first line of uh, verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now my wife and I and my family, have, our family have actually had the uh, wonderful opportunity to be uh, standing right there at Caesarea Philippi because it happened to be, uh, at, certainly at the time of Christ, a major hub, a major center of idol worship. And you can see carved in the stone walls right there on the, on the cliff, and there's actually a river that goes into the cliff right there that the people believe was the river of the dead. And you can see the um, inset carvings of the different uh, idols that they worshipped. And that was the nature of Israel at that time. They were worshipping idols. And yet standing right, th- right in front of them, as it were, in flesh and blood, was the promised king, the promised Messiah, the promised son of God, was standing right there in front of them, and they were, as we find out, denying him. They would rather stay with their idols. So it's very um, uh, instructive to understand where it was that Jesus gathered his apostles for them to report to him, reporting back having been out among the people for a period of time. So let's go ahead and read the pertinent passage here, and that is Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And stepping out of the scripture here for a moment, you see Son of Man listed and you see it capitalized. So it's referring to Jesus. Now this is the other manifestation of Jesus. This is the manifestation of Jesus as an unbeliever would see him, as an unbeliever would believe about him, that he was the son of Joseph, the son of a man, uh, born in the flesh, good man, good prophet, but hey, he's not uh, who... Uh, he proclaims himself to be. So they they not only see him as the son of man, but Jesus knows this. He knows that the people are, have turned against him. So he's referring to himself uh, in relationship to these unbelieving Jews as the way they see him. They, so he's referring to himself as the son of man. So hopefully you see that in verse 13. Verse 14, and they said, Asking, he's asked the disciples who do the people say that the son of man is and they said verse 14 some say John the Baptist and others Elijah but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets so obviously it's he is could be anybody but he's not Jesus he's not the son of God he's not the promised one of the Old Testament they're just not believing that then 15. But he said to them, them are the, the apostles, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So what he's saying here is, because Peter, this profession that you have made in front of me and in front of the other 11 apostles here, that I am the son of the living God, that I am the Christ, It's that profession. It's not you, Peter, but it's the profession that you just made about me. It's that profession on which I will build my church. So the church is not in existence yet. It is something yet future, which we know will happen once Jesus is is resurrected, excuse me, is um, raptured back to heaven uh, in Acts chapter 1, then the church is created in Acts chapter 2, uh, but it's going to be based on people, it's going to be built on people who make the same profession as Peter, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Christ. That's the key point I want to get across here. And we'll we'll come back and and uh, finish this out and move on to Acts chapter 8 in our next Uh, teaching portion of our next program. But as always, we want to move on to our Q&A portion uh, in each program. And we are continuing uh, with a question that uh, Rich in Indian Springs posed to us a while back. And we've actually turned into a mini teaching series on the triune Godhead and how the triune Godhead has worked with man, both in his perfect state at the beginning of Genesis and at the very end of Revelation. And in the meantime, in between those two perfect states, um, we have fallen man and how God interacts with fallen man. And we did that by describing and showing a number of verses where Jesus in his pre-incarnate, pre-fleshly form uh, interacted with man in the appearance of a man. He was actually an angel but his title was the angel of the Lord. So you had God interacting through the second member of the triune Godhead, Jesus, in his pre-incarnate form in many, many instances throughout the Old Testament, interacting directly in a human-like form with man so that man could could relate with him uh, as opposed to some uh, image or some other manifestation which of course did God as God did as well because we know that he was the shekinah glory which was kind of like a smoke if you will that dwelt the tabernacle in the wilderness that dwelt the tabernacle once once they came into the promised land up until the time of the first temple built by Solomon and then that shekinah glory and dwelt that temple and then ultimately left it uh, left that temple uh, when the Babylonians uh, tore it down and has not been back uh, since. And of course, you might rationalize. Well, wait a minute. What about what about the second temple that uh, was built by Zerubbabel and others, and then greatly, greatly embellished by Herod, uh, King Herod the Great? Well, it tells us that the Shekinah glory was never in that temple except when Jesus physically was in the temple teaching. That's the only time the glory of God was in the temple. Other than that, it was a period of God was not in the temple because the people were not believing. They were in unbelief. So we uh, we transitioned from the Old Testament to Jesus coming in the flesh to interact with man directly. And then when Jesus was raptured back to heaven in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1, then the Holy Spirit was given to us, and that's in Acts chapter two, and the Holy Spirit has been with us since, uh, dwelling principally within the church. So we were talking about that in our last couple of programs, where we're dealing with three groups now that are dealing with the tribulation period, which brings us back to more specifics of Rich's question uh, with the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit act in? the tribulation period, if his question had to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, it appears the church is taken away before the tribulation starts, so how can people be saved during the tribulation if apparently the Holy Spirit is gone? Well, the Holy Spirit didn't leave, and then we're building a, a case here, this mini-teaching series, uh, getting down to the Holy Spirit and to see how he does interact during the um, tribulation period, but we're building up to that because we're talking about the church before we get into the tribulation, because it's important to understand, because the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the church being raptured out, and once the church is raptured out, that uh, no one will be added to the church. And we went to Luke chapter 20, verses 34, 35, and 36 to show that those that are part of the church, once it's raptured, will never be added to. There will be no marriage. There will be no procreation because at that point, the church will be in their glorified bodies and it says they'll be like the angels because the angels are in glorified bodies as well. So the church is a finite entity once the rapture takes place. And then we have... um, If we understand that that's the case, then we want to go to uh, John chapter 14. So let's go in our Bibles to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we want to go to the last of the four Gospels. We want to go to John chapter 14 here. And we want to look at an important, very important um, passage, verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14. And this is one of those passages that you should have Indelibly marked in your memory here because it has to do with your salvation. Because it's when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you start that salvation work. You have been saved. And then you have the sanctification process where you are being saved. You are becoming more and more Christ like. Because remember, when you accepted Jesus Christ, Ephesians tells you, tells us, and you, that you were given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee that you will be saved. Because you see, you haven't been fully saved yet, and you will not be fully saved until you see Jesus Christ face to face at the Bema seat, which immediately follows the rapture of the church. So the way to look at it is, you've been saved, so you have been saved, you are now being saved, and ultimately you will be fully saved when you see Jesus Christ face to face. But the main thing to understand is you have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. God calls him the deposit, the guarantee. And that's in John, one place we find that is in John chapter 14. And let's look at verses 16 and 17. It says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you because at this point, Jesus had not been raptured back to heaven. And until Jesus left the earth, the Holy Spirit could not indwell the church. In fact, the church had not even been started until after Jesus left the earth. So you couldn't have both of those happening at the same time. That's why Jesus says, I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. So that's spelled out for you. I think it can't be any more clear than John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. So we'll continue with this important point in uh, our next Q&A in our next program. So in the meantime, remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air.
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.